You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Nation states work really well in a world of independent states. In a world of interdependent states, the structure, despite your army and your ambassadors and your seat at the United Nations, doesn't work well for pandemics, for trade, for refugee flows, for climate change, and certainly for water. And the inability of nation states to grapple with this sort of broad emerging new category of global challenges is what's thrusting cities into a new role as geopolitical actors. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Perch Pod. I'm your host, Jacob Shapiro, the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives. And on the show today with me, we have David Judson. David is the editor and co-founder of the Austin-based magazine Urbanitus, which is about the geopolitics of cities. Uh, Before that, he was editor-in-chief at Stratfor, which is where I met him. Before he got to Stratfor, he was the editor-in-chief at Hurriyet Daily News, which is an English-language newspaper in Turkey. David's original career is, of course, as a journalist. He was a reporter at Gannett Newspapers for decades in Washington, D.C. and California. And in addition to that impressive-sounding biography, I am also fortunate enough to call him my good friend. So, on to the show. Is it fair, then, to say that, kind of in your mindset, problems got too big for the city or for the local government, and so it had to go up to the state, and that involves consolidation of state power in the 1800s, 1900s, but we're sort of seeing the opposite happen now, that problems are almost too small, or small is maybe not the right word, but that the state can't actually do the things that it needs to do, whereas before its size was an advantage. Yeah, I mean, I think that that, that problems uh, grew and challenges grew in a way that was contiguous with the boundaries that evolved more or less from the 1600s onwards with what we call the Westphalian system, right? Um, and now these problems have busted across the boundaries. You know, we see this when we turn on the news or listen to the radio now with talk of coronavirus, right? But it's cities that are having to deal with this. Um, I mean, yes, governments can order testing. They can... Um, issue tax relief in various forms they can quarantine massive areas um, but the it's it's a local health officers it's the local school district it's the local transit system that's really going to be you know on the front lines of this particular challenge and that doesn't mean that cities are now in some kind of state of Walden Pond isolation Um, but they're working with other cities and it's these new and interesting coalitions. The C40 cities, for example, right? Nation states are having a devilish time, regardless of the ideology stuff that's another issue we could talk about. But even if you don't believe in climate change, as a lot of national leaders seem to do, uh, the, it's really hard for nation states to deal with something these transboundary issues that require them to surrender sovereignty, um, which is sort of the fundamental uh, ingredient of of the nation state. Um, cities don't have to worry about sovereignty. So, you know, one of my favorite examples right now is what's happening with the uh, rainforest in Brazil, um, that the United States government, led by Donald Trump, is a, in a state of 
climate change denialism, as well as the government of Bolsonaro, president of Brazil. So the rainforests are burning. This is a big problem, to say the least, not just in Brazil. Um, but neither the national government of the United States or the national government of Brazil is inclined to do anything because it's sovereignty. Don't bother us. It's, it's our problem. Or we'll fix it or we'll do whatever we want. It's the city of Sao Paulo that's working with the city of New York. Of New, York. New York's got a big stake after Sandy. Um, and it understands climate change really well. Sao Paulo understands it really well. And, um, and they're working with other cities to find ways to and bring in resources and bring in specialists to remediate um, the, all the, as best they can the whole variety of circumstances that are contributing to the destruction of the rainforest. Um, and so once again, it's cities uh, working in coalition that are confronting challenges that nation states are just Capable. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned Brazil because I've been brushing up on my South American history because it wasn't very good until recently and I've been doing a lot of work on South America lately. And one thing I didn't realize about Brazil was when the Europeans got to South America in the New World and they were colonizing everything, you know, on the Pacific side, there were the Incans and there were Mayans and there were Aztecs and all these great civilizations. And yeah, they did some weird things, but everybody did some weird things back in the day, whatever. There were no great civilizations on the other side. Right. I don't mean that as an insult. I'm just saying there were no right. large empires. And right. in a sense, Brazil, I mean, all nations are artificial, but Brazil is super artificial. And sort of the geopolitics of South America have never really faced this, this problem where there is a major power in Brazil that is expanding outwards. And I think some of what you're capturing is that Brazilian state it sort of has this almost organic need to expand. And that means, yes, we need to harvest the rainforest. We need to burn down the rainforest. We need to get access to the Pacific. We need to conquer this land or do right. that territory, this, the, the other thing. Whereas what you're talking about is a place like Sao Paulo or Rio, they have very different imperatives. They're about preserving wealth for whoever is in the city and about all the things that are going to allow that to happen. So it's, it's kind of an interesting divide there, don't you think? Yeah, no, I was just thinking when you were talking about that, I'm looking for a, a word that's not offensive, the relative level of sophistication and, you know, and use of technology and tools. Um, even, even, even power, I think. power, Even power and, and literacy. I mean, that um, the, the civilizations you, you, you mentioned, um, the, the Aztecs and the Incas, I mean, the Incas had, I think it was beads or something, but they had, a, um, they had a, uh, an equivalent of the written word. And, uh, and, of course, the Aztecs and the Mayans did as well. Um, which... You know, there might be an interesting, some interesting parallels to to draw east-west, almost in reverse of the United States, that you had, you know, the Iroquois nation um, was very, and had been trading with the, you know, from pre-Columbian um, uh, trade relationships existed um, with the um, the Viking settlers of Greenland um, way back as early as eight nine hundred. Going back to what you were saying about cities, you kind of mentioned, I, th I think you mentioned London briefly, and um, when I, I just had a couple stats I wanted to throw up, because I think there's something to this idea of a nationalism of cities, or a relationship of cities right. that have more in common with each other than they maybe do with their surrounding nations and surrounding states and have very different imperatives. Sure. The best example of this is that London voted 60% to remain in the European Union. 
and basically the rest of England voted against it. So it was basically London and then Scotland and Northern Ireland wanted to stay in the EU, whereas the rest of England didn't. You get that kind of division. It goes deeper than that, though. Um, 37% of London's population, foreign-born. It's 9% is the average for the rest of the UK. It's just completely different. Uh, very similarly, uh, New York City has almost the same number. 37% of New Yorkers, foreign-born. Weren't born in New York City, weren't born in the United States. Uh, compare that to a place like Iowa. I was reading a study where, I'm forgetting the name of the guy, but I'll make sure to cite it in the, in the afternotes here. But he did sort of a composite of different Iowan towns in the state of Iowa in the middle of the country. They were 92% white. <laughs> they had no diversity whatsoever. So you just get these completely different experiences. And whereas the cities can be these places of nationalism and where you're going to see people, you know, shouting, you know, USA or all this other stuff. Really, there, I think there is this disconnect between political priorities of cities and the rest of the country that you're kind of zeroing in on. Yeah, no, I mean, it, there was an interesting interview with, um, who's the last James Bond, uh, Craig? Daniel Craig. Daniel yeah. Craig, um, who lives in New York, was talking about, you know, I mean, you know, he sort of, it's the end of the United Kingdom, in his view. You know, as a deep and committed internationalist Londoner, um, he's um, just really devastated by by Brexit because it. I mean, he's you know a patriotic, if not nationalist, Englishman, and a patriotic, if not nationalist, in some extreme sense, Brit. But it's London that's his kind of main source of identity, and it's um, been fractured. Well, that's a perfect segue into Istanbul, where you spent many years of your life, formative period in your life, I think. How does how does Istanbul map on to some of the things we're talking about? Here? Yeah, no, I think it was interesting. We were talking about, um, before where the podcast began, about Istanbul and London, which at either end of, of Europe um, have been sort of trading places over the last thousand years in terms of population that, you know, Istanbul was bigger than London until like eight or 900, and then London became bigger, and then... Istanbul got the got the title back in like 1100, and then London held it until about 1990 or something like that. So, Istanbul is now bigger than London, and you know you've got a very similar um, kind of ethic there, and you know a lot of people would be particularly with you know all the problems that Turkey's had and and the neo Ottoman aspirations of the current president who really wants to kind of um, if by any other name. You know, reconstitute the Ottoman Empire, at least the Ottoman footprint, to kind of rule over a domain much larger than the boundaries of modern Turkey, which founded in 1923. There's, you know, increasingly a informal sentiment, if you will, that like if we could just get rid of the eastern half of this country. I mean, if if Istanbul was a nation state and in the European Union, it would be the sixth largest country in the European Union. It's bigger than out of the 28, 27. It's a very interesting um, urban laboratory. And the conflicts that we see, the, the tensions between the junior and senior levels of government, the rule of Istanbul now in the hands of the Social Democratic Party that's at odds with the national governance, they couldn't get financing for the, some of the transit. Um, so the mayor of Istanbul is going onto the international bond market in London to get financing for a transit system that the national government you know has, has you know managed formally and informally to deny them access to Turkish credit markets because the national government's too busy building another version of the Bosporus that right it doesn't right matter. exactly that they want to build a, um, a 
a, uh, you know, a, a sort of a new Panama Canal um, adjacent to the Bosphorus connecting two seas. And um, yeah, I don't know, that's another insane topic. We don't need to get there go there today, but it is an interesting one. Yeah. But it, it feels to me like maybe, well, you correct me if I'm wrong. Is there more conflict in a place like Istanbul between those different sides? Because a place like New York City, 81% voted for Clinton in the last election, you know, 19% voted for Trump. That mayoral election you were referring to in Istanbul where Erdogan's party lost, it was actually pretty close. It was kind of pretty tight, wasn't it? Well, it was. Interestingly enough, it was it was tight the first time around. Mm -hmm. He the um, the opposition party won by just thirty thousand votes, and Erdogan's party cried foul and canceled the election and demanded a second election and opportunity to get it right the second time. Um, and to the surprise of a lot of people, myself included. Um, the same voters um, gave him, gave the uh, the opposition leader who ultimately became the mayor, who's the mayor now, gave him a mandate, um, almost a million votes difference the second time. That you know there was um, these are the same voters, right? That somehow there was enough of a. Um, represented enough of an affront to the citizens of Istanbul that the national government would seek to interfere in this way um, that they came around. I mean, it's kind of like the, I don't know, the Uber vote in Austin, Texas, right? The city council uh, decided that Uber and Lyft had to play by the same rules as uh, the taxicab companies in terms of fingerprinting and security and all this kind of stuff. Um, and the Uber and Lyft managed to spend a ton of money um, to have a local referendum on that. A lot of people who wanted, myself included, who wanted Lyft and Uber to be here and thought that the rules that the city was playing probably were a little, you know, extreme. I mean, the uh, the, the risks involved with getting into an Uber are sort of acceptable in my way of thinking. Uh, but the, the idea that... Um, that, that Uber would try to end run the decision of the city in and itself was a reason to support the city council and uh, and vote against the referendum. Now, ultimately, again, this gets into the sort of, you know, growing dynamics and tensions between the junior and, and senior levels of governance. The um, Uber went to the state legislature and got the state legislature to overrule Austin. And so now we have um, Uber and Lyft here. Yeah, it's funny you bring up that vote because at the time, I'm happily married now, but at the time I wasn't, and I was trying to impress this girl who I had just met, and she was really great, and she was working for the, the anti-Uber Lyft boat people. I remember she, I did a bunch of research on it because I wanted to impress her with all my knowledge, and oh. I, it was incredible because, like you said, Uber and Lyft, they spent millions. Yeah, right. No, it was, it was, most, it was the most expensive election in the history of Austin. And they lost. And they lost. And the, the forces opposing them only had a couple hundred grand, but right. they had a message that... Right, they got Austinites right. to buy into. So. Right, right, and the uh, you know you had the same thing happen up in northern Texas in Denton. City decided that they didn't want to have fracking, which is east of Dallas, um, and so they banned fracking, um, and the state legislature was falling all over itself um, to overrule overrule them, um, 
We have lots of examples of this. I mean, you have, um, you know, in Australia, you know, the the climate change denialism um, and the wildfires. I mean, the wildfires were fought locally, not nationally. You know, I think you see this uh, national versus local tension in Hong Kong. Um, And you see it, it's not just in, you know, issues that maybe, uh, you know, appeal to a kind of liberal sentiment. You have the emergence of this new thing of... sanctuary cities for the unborn where perhaps it's symbolic but that cities are you know effectively banning abortion within the city limits in contravention of state and federal law you know is another way this is playing out um, so it's 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 complex but but the point being really is that there's a uh, demonstrable broad array of challenges by local levels of government to those above it. I want to dive specifically into water, which is kind of what your latest Urbanitas edition is going to be focused on. I'm going to ask you a couple different questions, but before we do, and I encourage everyone to go read it, there was one little passage I thought that I should read first. Um, Here's the passage. Quote, that this then leads to the idea that there are no different categories of waste, storm, black, gray, rain, and drinking water, which seems on the face of it simple enough. There's just water. We have no more or less of it than when it was formed in interstellar gas clouds and delivered to Earth as it was being formed more than four billion years ago. So to back up, I mean, water kind of began as a city thing. Um, you know, the really Chicago was the first city in the United States to really have an urban water system. But it, they hadn't really cracked the code between water outgoing, i.e. sewer water, versus water incoming drinking water. So there were a lot of health issues with that, obviously. So really, I think the history of modern water in cities begins about 150 years ago in London, when the um, physician Snow proved the link between uh, water and disease, and that all the cholera was spreading from a single polluted well in, in London. So that sort of nationalized or began the nationalization of water policy. So again, in the United States, urban water systems began really to get built in the beginning of the 20th century. By the 1920s, most cities were having um, treatment plants, um, purification plants were being built. They weren't purifying sewer water, they were, but they were preferring the incoming. And then, then we arrive at the Clean Water Act, you know, which in the 1970s and a host of other environmental rules that um, not only mandated cleaning up what we were putting into the water and streams, um, but also provided billions and billions of dollars for cities to build their own treatment plants, purification plants, um, and adopt standards. And so, you know, we sort of had the um, the, the, the growth of a way of thinking about water and thinking about utilities that treated water in these, in these five different categories, you know, potable, non-potable, storm, gray, black, etc., um, which is fine, but it's both a prohibitively expensive way to, it's an industrial way of treating water, as well as it does not presume scarcity. And so the, this, this new movement, which really started in Australia, um, has happened outside the gaze of the federal government. Um, it's kind of organized itself around the term one water. That's sort of the organizing principle. But it's, it's spread so that utilities all over the world now, um, I think we noted that one utility in California in Monterey has renamed itself One Water Monterey. I mean, this, the, you know, this 
term has taken such such hold. But what I think it really does is rather than treat the issue of water as an industrial problem to be solved, it treats it almost in a fashion that might be described as biomimicry, thinking about all the water that we've ever had and how it cycles through us and through plants and animals and into the sea and up into the clouds and, and back down again as rain. And, um, and so it's a, um, you know, a, a system that kind of embraces that way of thinking about water and in the process maximizes in a radical, radical way um, the reuse of water. The best analogy uh, that I've encountered yet is the International Space Station. Yeah, I wanted, I wanted to bring that up. That was, that was the one that struck me, turning planet Earth into the International Space yeah, Station. Yeah, right. I mean, so, I mean, and the International Space Station has two totally distinct and disconnected systems, one for the Russians, one for the Americans. Both recycle everything. Both recycle even the sweat that comes off of lab rats. I mean, we don't really think about that, but the weight of water, if you're going to keep people up there for a year, how many tons of water does a team consume in a year? So the interesting thing is that the Russians have a somewhat less offensive system when it comes to the psychologically difficult threshold of urine. Certainly technologically and feasibly possible to purify urine back to um, potable drinking water standard, but it still is kind of a a difficult burden to get over. Um, So the Russians don't do it. Um, The Americans do. But the Americans have become so practical about this um, that they take the Russian urine and recycle it through their own system. So you have a water grab in space, uh, which is, I think, pretty interesting. Yeah, I don't know. But, but th- there was the space station metaphor, and then there was also this tactical example you gave about how the river walk in San Antonio is right. all just a recirculating loop of treated wastewater. Right. Which right. When, when you're sitting there having a beer on the river walk, you don't kind of realize that that's a bunch of recycled wastewater, but there it is. Right. It's not even like wastewater that's you know, been treated and being returned to the streams in some semi-natural process. I mean, it is a little bit bizarre. It's a sort of captive body of water that's treated wastewater that just gets circulated in a in a loop. It's it, it occurs to me, so I'm always thinking, I usually think about water from an international perspective, and especially when it comes for countries that are water-stressed. And it's funny because you spend a lot of time talking about Austin and Texas, which definitely is water-stressed, sure. but relative to a place like China, for instance, which one of my favorite stats to trot out there is that China has 21% of the world's population, 6% of the world's permanent water resources. Wow. It's, you know... If you flip that around for the U.S., it's something like 5% of the world's population, but like over 50% of the world's permanent water resources. The United States is actually very water-rich. So you would think that maybe in China they would be innovating in a lot of these ways, and I don't know for sure, but it seems to me maybe that's an interesting test case for what you're talking about, that everything in China is becoming top-down from Xi Jinping on down. You can't do anything without the approval of the top. We just saw this happen with coronavirus. So maybe that is killing innovation in some ways in a place that actually can afford to waste water even less than we can. Is, is China on your radar at all in the one yeah, water China, Yeah, China is not, not on my radar, really. I think that the, the two countries in Asia that are are Singapore and Japan. Japan is the, was the first country in the world in the 1950s to begin using um, dual piping systems in apartment buildings. So they're using you know, gray water to flush your toilet and water your tiny garden um, outside the front of the apartment in case of Japan, or to do laundry. Um, but if you're taking a shower or drinking or cooking, um, it's a different system. And Singapore is also a pioneer in, in this sort of radical reuse 
I'd be willing to bet that um, you know China is is doing a lot. The I mean Israel is of course the pioneer in in, um, in many many ways. Um, but it's funny though that you're pointing out. I mean I'm I'm spitballing here. Maybe this is wrong a little bit, but Israel's small, right? Uh, so it's it's not quite a city. It's got a couple different cities, but small enough to where a government can be that kind of flexible. Right. Singapore is a city state. Japan is basically Tokyo. I mean, we're talking about 20% of economy, the whole thing. Um, so ironically, those are all examples where a smaller entity maybe is able to innovate in these particular spaces, whereas maybe a larger entity can't. Right. I mean, I, well, I guess what I'm what I'm what I would like to know more about. Maybe this is the next you know the next iteration of the work we're doing at Urbanitus is what is the example? My hunch is that China is trying to solve it in a kind of you know, Eisenhower way. It might be interesting to pair it with India, and maybe I'll, I'll do this for you or we'll do it together or something, because India is almost the exact opposite, where nothing is top-down, where everything is local, right. and they're a disaster. Um, they just had a government report come out and say 600 million Indians live uh, in severe water stress. Um, they've got a 2030 production that, or projection that demand is going to be twice the level of supply in India for water. Just in 2030, you've already got cities like Chennai, which is a city just ran out of water a while ago. But I don't want to get too far off track. The the other one of the other things I wanted to ask you about was you had a section in here where you talked about specifically in Texas about water being treated like a mineral, like in right. terms of mineral rights, or that right. the, the water that you collect from the sky actually becomes your property. Like I had this funny image of John Locke sitting there going, life, liberty, property, and Dasani bottled water is what every is the social contract. So tell me a little bit about about finding that out and what does that mean, do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, so I think that, I think this is, this is real interesting stuff. Um, the maybe a little wonky, but... Um, Hopefully our listeners at this point yeah. understand that they're going to be wonky. Yeah, right. So, and if you're not, have a beer. Yeah, have a beer. The so you know obviously America has um, is an outlier with the rest of the in comparison with the rest of the world when it comes to uh, the regulation of what's out of the ground. So most nations, with a couple of exceptions, uh, I think Australia may be kind of like the United States when it comes to mineral rights. I'm not sure if it's under the ground, the government owns it. You know, you can get royalties for allowing the government to get access to it. But the United States, we're, as a nation, pretty proud of the fact that if something's under the ground um, and you own the ground above it, the mineral rights are yours too. So that's one bit of outlierism. The second one is is water. I mean, you know, water law is really fragmented around the United States because you've got, you know, in the Western United States, you've got, you know, sort of legacies that have been grandfathered in. Of In California, the sort of body of informal law that got, developed during the gold rush um got you know carried over and incorporated into modern practice really yeah the uh, first in time first in right because most of the the early mining was hydraulic it was before the you know the gold panning right and so that had to blend with accommodation to all the practice from um spanish law then later mexican law that has that's an issue in texas and then and then you know and then texas you know is so uh you know famously serious about private property rights um, that Texas is unique in two ways, at least, many ways, but when it comes to water. Um, one is that, um, with a few minor exceptions, the water beneath you is yours. If you put a, if we put a well down uh, from where we're sitting right now in South Austin, whatever water we tap into would be ours even though we'd be tapping into the Edwards Aquifer, which you know, is a source of 
you know, the famous spring. It's the Edwards Aquifer south of here is like the drinking supply for San Antonio and New Brownfields, et cetera, et cetera. And if we, you know, suck it up here, then that means somebody can't suck it up someplace else. It's it's very much a zero-sum game, but it's not really understood that way. But Texas has never really been able to overcome that hard little problem in Texas law. The other thing that's particularly interesting and I think unique about Texas is rainwater. <laughs> that in virtually every other state, rainwater is treated essentially the way you treat water in streams. It's like stream water that hasn't arrived at the stream yet. Sure, people could informally, you know, um, have a, you know, a, a catchment barrel on their rain gutter on their roof, but they, nobody's going to complain about that. But technically, you can't lock up all the water flow coming from a rainstorm that would ordinarily be going into the natural system. That's uh, public property. But in Texas, if you can catch a raindrop, you own it. The other thing that's problematic, and again, this gets back to the leadership of cities in Texas, at least since Ann Richards stepped down as governor um, in 1994, in any state policy, climate change does not exist. It's just anathema. Um, and despite you know all that Texas has been through and all that Texas is going to go through, it's particularly rich and ironic that probably the place that's going to be most impacted by climate change and volatile weather is still in the state of denial, official denial at the state level. Um, that what, what is that about? How do you explain that from a geopolitical or political level, that, that level of denial? Because it's, it's literally asinine to me. I don't often come down black and white, but even if you don't subscribe to global warming, which, okay, fine, like I'll even grant you that argument. Of course the climate's changing. It's always changing. And of course it changes based on what we're doing. If you stick your head in the sand and say it's not changing, I mean, okay, well, you're I think, insane. I, right, okay, I think that, that maybe I should have corrected myself. I think that there... You know that that would might be the more the more recent argument is yeah the climate there is some climate change the climate has always changed but it's not part it, it's not caused by human activity yeah or it's not significant enough to worry about or the financial costs of dealing with it are going to be more expensive but it's just patently not true and I don't understand why all these le- like what does it do for them to stand on that high horse and say that it's just like read any study out there it's just not true yeah well i mean come on you know, you're going to have di- you know drinks tonight with a lobbyist ask him <laughs> I mean, we could talk about you know culture and 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 religiosity and a lot of different things but i think it basically gets down to the power in texas of the petroleum industry you know energy really drives the economy of the state um, maybe less so, but it still drives the politics of the state. You know, as energy companies are kind of wising up and coming aboard, maybe this will change in Texas. I hope so. But cities can. Cities don't have that problem, and uh, and and so and so cities are doing. So you know, Austin, I think is you know gets a lot of credit on this. Um, that you know, Austin has put together a 100-year plan for water management. Only a handful, if any, other cities have done that in the United States. And sure, it's got to change, but it looks at current trends and likely trends um, and the radical steps that um, Austin might have to take after 2050 up to 2070. Um, and the fact that they're doing that, I think, is, um, is great. And these kinds of initiatives are happening in Oakland, they're happening in San Francisco, they're happening in New York, they're happening in Chicago. But they're certainly not happening at the national level. I guess in some ways because they don't have to is kind of what your point is, right? For the national government, it's not a big deal or they have other imperatives. Whereas if you're in Austin, if you don't do something, you're going to run out. You're going to be one of those Indian cities that runs out of water. With right. Pictures on right. CNN. Yeah, exactly. Right. In fact, El Paso, Texas may be the first large city in the United States. There have been some small ones um, who actually went to what they call direct potable reuse, which is the International Space Station model. 
there's Wichita Falls up in northern Texas, basically turned around and put their treated wastewater back into their purification plant. And, you know, various stomach diseases and various kinds of maladies actually declined um, when they began really drinking their own purified sewage. Um, yeah, yeah, so... <laughs> Well, that's ironic. I think one of one of the credits to the American political system is that it has always integrated both federal and local concerns. That sort of has been at the heart. That conflict between local and federal government has been at the heart of the union for the entire time. We've fought over it. We've killed each other over it. All these other things. But I think part of what you're talking about, a way forward here, is that both sides need to talk to each other and understand that this isn't about the city looking down on the rural person and saying you're a dumb hick farmer. It's no, about, not at all. No, like we have serious problems here, and it can also be used in your community. Also vice versa. And I say that as somebody who grew up on a farm and then came and lived in cities and goes back and forth between them. I actually think the worst thing we could do is have that kind of segregation that we started with, with this kind of, oh, there are cities over here and countries or states over here. That's maybe the United States, its political system has a unique way of fusing those things together, hopefully. Well, two, two quick thoughts on that. One is, you know, again, these decentralized systems for managing water that are smaller and leaner and more nimble that are being pioneered here in Austin, written about that. Other cities are doing it. So Austin's a very rich city. San Francisco's a very rich city. They can do this. But these technologies have real applicability for rural water districts, trailer parks. I think that in many instances, and water would be you know a prime example of that, these are not policy developments that are somehow at odds with the needs of rural areas. Um, they can diffuse from cities to, to rural areas um, in a really logical and civilized way. The second thought, I will have to paraphrase it and then maybe butcher it, but Nassim Taleb, the um, author most famous for Black Swan, um, his latest book, which is uh, Skin in the Game, he was talking in some context in the book about the relationship of various levels of governance. And he used a, a line that I think is kind of appropriate to this discussion, which is he said, at a national level, I'm a libertarian. When it comes to state politics, I'm a Republican. In my city, I'm a Democrat. And in my neighborhood, I'm a socialist. <laughs> um, the, and so I think that there's a area of hyper-partisanship. There's a post-partisan or a trans-partisan kind of evolution happening in the country at the local level that um, that we don't see at the um, at the federal level. Yeah, everybody's got to get along at city. Well, I like leaving it at that. So we'll leave it there. That was David Judson. I'm Jacob Shapiro. Okay, thanks, Jacob. This was fun. Find us on every major streaming platform under the name Perch Pod. Follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perch2020, or you can find us on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. You can also check out our website. That's PerchPerspectives.com. Take good care, and we'll see you out there.